Bob Dylan said one day in an interview that writing a song was no more than catching a butterfly. They float about in the air. All you have to do is to be the first to catch one. I like that. On the 7th of January 2014, I was lucky enough to catch a short, unexpected butterfly of a song. A simple one too, with no psychedelic colored wings or anything. Just a few notes and a few words. But you all know about the butterfly effect theory. In short, according to the Cambridge Dictionary, a situation in which an action or change that doesn't seem important has a very large effect, especially in other places or around the world. The name of the song was the one of an existing person that I had never met, and it was sent to her as a message in the bottle, except I didn't expect it to reach any shore, really. The name of the song? Barbara Browning Barbara Browning Two months later, the existing person was waiting for me at JFK. She had long floating hair, a green raincoat and a ukulele in her hand. The next day we gave our first gig in a fancy New York venue for a fancy New York audience. They liked it. So did we. Imre Lodbrog et sa petite amie were born. It's true, that fateful day in 2014, I took the A-train to JFK to greet the arrival of Imre Lodbrok. It wasn't Imre's first trip to New York, but it had been a while. He was coming at my reckless invitation, sight unseen, after he wrote that song about me. I told him he sounded like Serge Gainsbourg on shrooms. Who could resist? I offered to be his backup singer and manager. I'd even managed to book us that gig. No money involved, but there would be free booze. Believe it or not, he took the bait. Shortly after that, we decided to take our show on the road. But after seven wacky, reckless years of gallivanting about, the pandemic struck, and Imre and I found ourselves, like everybody, pretty much housebound in our pod. I like that term, pod as a signifier for our little household of two. We really are, as they say, two peas in a pod. We share so many predilections and habits, and we felt very lucky to have one another's company. But the pod in which we found ourselves was feeling pretty restrictive. I've long been a city dweller, but Imre had been living in a tiny rural hamlet in Normandy for years, and he was pining for nature. Of course, That desire was nothing compared to his yearning for his country, his language, and most of all, his two daughters on the other side of the Atlantic. So impulsively, in survivalist mode, we did something we'd long fantasized about. We moved around our resources and headed upstate in search of a house in the country. Shadow in a cloud inside a solitary cloud I chose 
in the country is the name I gave to one of my songs written just a few months after I had met my petit ami. By then we had decamped to Normandy where I have my own den, an old 19th century handmade house. It was Barbara's first visit and stay there and I had some apprehension. She had warned me before coming that she was definitely a city person and that I might have to drive her back to the airport after a few days in the wild. Some city people cannot stand the country. I knew a woman who made it short. Le jour, on s'emmerde, et la nuit, on a peur. Meaning, during the day you get bored, and at night you freak out. Well, this was not the case with my petit ami. During the day, she sat beaming in the shade of a tree, and at night she slept like a log. What did I have in mind exactly when writing this song, which was sort of an invitation to change of life? The French title for the Marilyn Monroe comedy, The Seven Year Each, is Sept Ans de Réflexion, which makes sense in our story. Seven years after the song, The house in the country became reality. When we got cut off from France, it seemed hard to imagine that we could replicate something like Imre's idyllic getaway on this side of the Atlantic. But what we found upstate seemed like a little miracle. 
a peach-colored cottage on the edge of a wild marsh. The road was so tiny it didn't even get postal service. We were right across from the Great Fly, a small swamp home to many birds and other creatures. At night, we'd venture out into the wooded areas with little forehead-mounted flashlights and stare at the deer whose eyes shone back at us neon green. During the day, Imre took walks with a net and a bucket, collecting frogs, newts, and snails. It didn't take the place of his hobbit house in Normandy, but it did satisfy at least some of his naturalist appetites. And increasingly, his appetites became mine as well. I confess, I have a delirious passion for amphibians of all kinds. I do believe we all were tadpoles in an early stage of our life, and if you look at one, actually a tadpole is like a giant replica of a spermatozoa. Wherever I have lived, in the city or the country, and since I was a kid, I always had frogs, toads, newts and salamanders as companions. So when we arrived here, in this beautiful house, facing all this water, steaming with aquatic life, it really seemed like paradise to me. One week after we got here, I had already a rich collection in my vivarium. Green frogs, garter snakes, water turtles and company. The idea was to enjoy watching them, feed them, to the point that they become familiar, and release them in the spring. It's sort of a Hilton winter residency for them. Hibernation in nature for the frogs is no joke. They have to bury themselves in the mud, many feet under the ice shield that covers the ponds, and remain alive at the very edge of freezing, breathing through their skin once a week or so. Another thing, sort of intimate but related detail that I should confess, is that I have two web toes on each foot, which just confirms my conviction that we evolved from amphibians into humans. Now if you want a more accurate point of view about our aquatic origins and their consequences in our everyday life, I strongly recommend you Read this fascinating essay by the psychoanalyst Sandor Ferenczi called Talasa. He recommended that book to me as well, and indeed it's great and very trippy, like many things he recommends. Ferenczi's big idea is that all animals, us included, are really just clamoring to get back to our origins. That is, the water. Sex, according to Ferenczi, is just one sloshing attempt to return to our original amniotic abode. But back to our house here. It was beautiful, all right, and surrounded by water. But there were a few minor nuisances, if you're attached to the idea of modern convenience. Our satellite internet connection, for example, was very feeble, as was our cellular service. We tried to view this as an advantage, less screen time at a moment when the whole world seemed to be getting sucked into screens. As for our former urban existence, we miss our old haunts, 
a cramped dive bar on Houston Street called Milano's, where a trumpet player named Carol Morgan used to hold court, and our beloved Dixon Place, a louche performance space on the Lower East Side where we regularly serenaded our own little following of misfits. Here in the country, we listen to the blackbirds and the crickets who make a surprising racket. Sometimes we play for them. Another thing I should confess, quite opposite to my passion for amphibians, I have a strong allergy for the internet cosmogony and all that goes with it. I see it mostly as a huge time-consuming non-activity, filling our brains to the point of emptying them. As for our bodies, the internet made them as useless as an old car in the garage. Being an old-timer, I have a certain nostalgia for the times when you took a pencil, a sheet of paper, and wrote a letter to whoever, put it in an envelope, licked the stamp and stuck it on. I still have the taste of the stamp on my tongue. Then you would go to the mailbox and toss it in the slot. Times when you would cross your room to go check the etymology of a word in a dictionary or cross the street to the next bookstore, or every action took some time, and it was okay, because we were not in a rush. Now we're still not in a rush, but we're in a hurry. It's like we need speed. Motionless speed, of course. When the internet starts to go slow, people start getting crazy. We want instant delivery, or maybe pre-instant delivery. I once read in some scientific book that when we'll find a way to overpass the speed of light, we might be able to stand at one point and see ourselves racing toward our encounter. A sort of arrival before departure. Personally, I don't mind slowing down the race, and walking at my own pace along the grid fly, the slower you walk, the more details you see. I even don't mind identifying with a snail sometimes, sliding my way between the gigantic blades of grass and leaving behind me a shiny trail of slime. Chicago, where do you go so slow? Ta coquille sur le dos, a crawling marshmallow, so mellow. Chicago. Oh, oh. 
It's true, he was right. When I began to let go of my attachment to speed, things began to feel much less fraught, even with all the scary things that were happening around us. Deprived of our globe-trotting adventures, I began to appreciate the notion of going slow. The great fly looks like a blessing to us. In terms of beauty, It's a constant changing painting, according to the weather. Like a mirror, the waters reflect and even increase the colors of the sky. The blue becomes more intense, the clouds darker. As I did mention, it's also a fantastic reservoir of all kinds of amphibians and reptiles. But we also discovered lately, through readings, that the great Vlai is, or was, a place of malediction, holding in his invisible depth the meanest evil spirit ghost, who sometimes at twilight can emerge and grab the passerby by the ankle and drag him down and deep in the bottom of the waters. In a general way, we discovered that the whole area of the Ulster County has been, through the centuries, a land of legends and various ghostly hauntings, some funny, some terrifying. We might tell you more about it 
in our next chapter.